Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is God's word. Thank you, Lorraine, for reading God's word to us. Good morning, GBC. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the lay elders here uh, at GBC. And it's my pleasure this morning to be bringing God's word to you. So, two to one, Saudi Arabia versus Argentina. 2-0, Morocco versus Belgium. 2-1, Japan versus Germany. It's been a tough season to prepare for a sermon now that the World Cup 2022 is in full swing. Watching many of the underdogs beat the more established rivals, I have been reminded of the fact that it's called the beautiful game because nothing is for certain. No victory is a given, no matter how big a legacy you carry. And indeed, nothing is certain for many things in life. The stock market, the weather tomorrow, or whether Kazumi, our daughter, will finally eat her veggies. If you have come to church this morning feeling the dread of some sort of uncertainty in life, today's passage holds out a refreshing certainty that the Lord will return to reign. He will put an end to false gods, and he will vanquish all evil. So the big idea for our text today that Lorraine read for us in Psalm 97 is that the Lord, his reign is established, the Lord's reign is exalted, and the Lord's reign is assures. So this psalm today is actually a prophetic song. It's a song written about the coming king who will return to reign over the whole world. This song was sung most probably congregationally amongst Israel as they anticipated the returning king. How apt to be meditating on this as we look forward to celebrating the coming of Christ this Advent season. So as we study this text together, we can expect it to give us a glimpse into what God's return will look like and how God's people are to 
look forward to his return. It opens with a prophetic declaration of the Lord's reign. I must admit that this is something that I struggle to grasp because so much of what we experience is marred with corruption and abuse. We simply do not have a comprehensive picture of what it looks like for someone to reign well. So much so that we often are suspicious of any sort of absolute power. We open our news apps and we see war, oppression of peoples, and also the widespread distrust of authorities. However, in today's psalm, we are faced with a vastly different kind of reign. It is a reign that warrants rejoicing throughout the kingdom. It is described as a reign that causes joy to reverberate amongst the king's people. And we get the sense that God's good administration spills out into the land and causes even for nature to sing for joy. It is also a reign that spreads joy far and wide to the coastlands, to the very far-flung islands at the edge of Israel's known world. Every single square inch of land will come under the universal rule of the Lord. The Lord reigns, and His dominion brings joy to all creation, both near and far. The king's reign brings joy. However, he is not a king that Israel is to flippantly approach. Verse 2 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He is righteous. There can be no fault found in him. Not only does he perfectly adhere to the moral standard, he is the moral standard. He is the embodiment of righteousness itself. He is righteousness perfected. The king is also the nation's chief justice. His righteous character is reflected in how he administers the law with perfect fairness. He does not mishandle the law by overpunishing out of unbridled rage, nor does he underpunish and leave sin unaddressed. Each judgment is meted out with precision and intention, giving to each party exactly what they deserve. We see how God's righteous and holy character is complemented with the perfect application of the law. And these are the hallmarks of this king's reign, perfectly righteous and perfectly just. The Lord is described as being surrounded by clouds and thick darkness, echoing how he appeared to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. God shrouded himself in darkness, cloud, and gloom so that he might shield Israel's presumptuousness from his perfect righteousness and justice. We get the same sense in today's text of the coming king's 
unapproachable holiness. He is blindingly pure. He is awesome in majesty. He is fiercely just. And verses 3 to 5 are a grand display of his command over creation as he melds it to his will. We read of fire that goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. The Lord's devouring holiness consumes his enemies. No trace of them is left behind. It also shouldn't surprise us that the Lord is surrounded by adversaries all around him. God's people are to be prepared that there will be many that oppose the Lord outrightly. But we can take heart that the Lord is not surprised, nor is he blindsided by any of his foes. There will come a day when he will address each of them with his consuming fire. In that day, his vengeance will not go unnoticed throughout the world. It says, his lightnings light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. When he acts, it will be unmistakable. And the mountains, the mountains will melt like wax. What is seen as immovable to man will be dissolved. Mountain peaks and features used as reference points for maps and navigation, they will lose their definition as they liquefy under the Lord's command. What is the point of all this? God's people sing this psalm so that all the world might recognize his undisputed lordship and come to know him. If you do not call Christ your Lord this morning, my prayer is that you would have a clearer glimpse of his sovereignty and of his certain return. This psalm is not sung as a taunt and a threat. You are welcome in our midst. But I plead with you to consider for a moment how you would respond to this God if what we've read about him is true. Myself and the elders here would be happy to talk to you more over coffee later in the fellowship hall. So the Lord is the true king returning to rule this world. Everything from creation to its inhabitants will bow to him at his return. Rejoice in this great certainty. Our next section talks about the Lord's reign and how he is exalted in verses 6 to 9. In verses 6 to 9, the psalmist contrasts two groups in relation to the Lord. The first group are all of God's people, and the second group are those that worship other gods. Verse 6 says, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. Knowing God rightly as reigning king naturally leads to rightful worship of him. Those that belong to God in the heavenly realms cannot help but declare his righteousness and, and his righteous character to the world. The praise of his name spills from their lips and his glory is seen through their proclamation. 
what better way to verify the goodness of God than to ask the people that actually live under his law. In verse 8, we hear of Zion that hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. The mark of God's people is that they love, cherish, and marvel at his perfect character. We are to be a people that are captured by the beauty of his nature and rejoice in his judgments. As God's people, we do not testify to the goodness of our, our God begrudgingly or out of duty. God's people love his judgment. How do we join God's people in proclaiming his righteousness and judgments? Well, one way that we can participate is in furthering the gospel message to nations that do not yet have access to the gospel. Doing so with the goal of seeing healthy churches planted and the gospel faithfully preached. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? If we are convinced of the certainty of Christ's universal reign, then surely we rejoice in his reign by telling of his wondrous character. Would we put our resources, our time, and maybe even our holidays to make his name great among the nations? If some of you here, though, have an inkling of a desire to bring his word to the nations, will you cultivate your gospel effectiveness? Will you give yourself to the ministry of nurturing the church body here first? Will you train and prepare yourself to be winsome for the gospel should one day the Lord open a door? As all the peoples of the earth see the glory of God, those that worship other images will come to the realization of the worthlessness of their gods. They will be put to shame because their gods will not meet their greatest needs. Their hopes will be dashed because the object of their hope simply has no power. Verse 7 categorically says, all worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. The very first two commandments given to God's people at Sinai outline the law and consequences clearly. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Image worship robs God of the glory he deserves. It detracts attention away from him and instead deceives people into believing in false sources of hope. 
And ironically, Israel herself had a really bad track record of obeying this law, didn't they? They created the golden calf as Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments. They later intermingled with the nations, the neighboring nations, and started worshiping foreign gods, even to the point of adopting evil practices like child sacrifice. The ugly history of Israel's own idolatry was certainly not far from their minds as they sang this song. So we read verse 7, not with a sense of snobbish condemnation, but with urgent persuasion, coming from a heart of humility, knowing that the shiny temptations and the allures of idols are ambivalent to divine heritage, and we face them all. Sin and temptation do not care if you're an Israelite or God's chosen people. And the appeal is made directly to the gods to acknowledge the Lord's reign, to admit their false promises and worship the one true God. Worship him, all you gods. Our Lord reigns. He is the Lord most high over all the earth. He will be exalted far above all the earth. Friends, we are called to deal with our own idols first. Is there any lowercase gods receiving your worship today? Take the time to pinpoint what that is and come to the Lord in repentance. For some of us, it's the God of comfort and pleasure. For some, it's career and progression. For others, it's the God of reputation and pride. And it might even be good things like children and ministry. Neither of these were created to receive your wholehearted worship. Neither of these can give you lasting and true fulfillment. My prayer is that God will clearly convict you of how it is undeserving of your worship. May all these instead bring glory to the Lord Most High. Friends, from understanding our own idolatry, we're also to warn others of the dangers of worshiping anything other than God. As we are given the opportunity this Advent season to have conversations with our non-believing friends, maybe it's by the water cooler, you know, maybe it's over break uh, between meetings, May we rejoice, may we speak with both Godward worship, but also with humble warning in those conversations. May that sprinkle our conversations with our non-believing friends. May we rejoice for in that day, all our idols will be put low. Their worthlessness will be evident. In that day when Christ comes again, no other gods will stand beside him. Well, we are in our third section for today, verses 10 to 12. And it talks about the Lord and how his reign assures his people. The last three verses 
of the psalm turn to address God's people on two imperatives and four assurances of life under the Lord's reign. The first imperative is found in verse 10. It says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. God's people are to have a strong sense of what their king is like. They are to love righteousness and justice. They are not to be ambivalent about evil. If the king's people truly love him, they are to be more and more conformed to his likeness. Citizens under the king's rule are transformed to his likeness. There is more reason to rejoice for evil is expunged and goodness is propagated throughout his earth. Unless his people forget his goodness, the psalmist reminds us of four assurances. The first is that the Lord will preserve and defend the lives of his saints in the second half of verse 10. And there is deliverance from the hand of the wicked. These two points taken together highlight that though deliverance from suffering or persecution from the wicked are not guaranteed in this life, God's people can know their lives will be ultimately preserved and kept safe to the end. I'm conscious of the fact that there are some of us here that are personally experiencing injustice. Maybe you are suffering under some workplace mistreatment or your heart might be aching with the wrongful treatment of someone else that you know. Though our conscience, through our conscience, God has given us a sense of justice to know right from wrong. And indeed, we strive to pursue justice, but the reality is that justice is simply not something we can execute perfectly. I'm sure we all feel our powerlessness in that sometimes. As we read our Bibles, though, we, there is one who are reminded, we are reminded that can. The promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will eliminate sin completely and restore all things. Christ is the one that is chiefly, well, God is the one that is chiefly offended when you are sinned against. Because all sin against any of his creation is a personal affront to him, the creator. So take heart that he is the king who rules in righteousness and justice. He is not limited like we are. He is not powerless to act like we often are. The king will return to judge and justice will be poured out. May your hearts be comforted even as we long for this perfect justice. Point three of the, the assurances in verse 11 is a strong assurance that God's light in our lives is already sown in fertile ground. It says light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. It is already planted, speaks of this tender care that the Lord puts into preparing 
for his people's future needs. He is not surprised by your current needs or even your future needs. It is not an afterthought. But God provides for your needs before you even know when you need it. At the right time, his guiding light will take root and bear fruit in his people's lives so that his people need not be lost or without direction. There is also further hope as his light also symbolizes righteousness and that is given to transform his people to be more like himself. Indeed, without his transformation, his people have no ability to be truly righteous. So we long for light to fully bear fruit in our lives and make us like our Lord. Lastly, we are assured that joy will spring forth for those that are upright in heart. So in God, we have deliverance, we have guidance, we have joy. What is especially comforting is that the psalmist confidently addresses God's people as the righteous and the upright in heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reminds us where such confidence actually lies. It says, For our sake he made him, meaning Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, it was for our sake that a perfectly sinless Christ took on the full judgment of God on himself for our sins. So Jesus did bring the judgment of God, but he brought it fully on himself, the singular person that actually did not deserve judgment. And he did so so that those like us who deserved it could be called righteous. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, you are the righteousness of God. And these assurances are ours. Long for it, treasure it, remind each other of it. Along our path, we might experience hardships and persecution for believing in Christ. We will continue to also struggle with sin. But we have ample reason to rejoice as we look forward to the day when that righteousness will be made complete at our King's return. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 gives us a wonderful picture of what it's like living in this here and now, looking forward to our King's return. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high, pla- on my high places. Friends, as we go through life, 
May we rejoice in our returning King. Let us go to God in prayer. Dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of final justice that is coming. Lord, we thank you for how this meets many of us where we're at. As we long for you, Lord, as we anticipate your coming, as we celebrate your birth soon, in a few more days, Lord, we pray that you would continue to stir up in us our longing for you, our returning King. Turn our eyes away from the distractions of this world. Help us to focus on you who will be making all things right. For Lord, in on, only in you can we find our true joy. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and we pray that you would help it to bear fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask and pray, amen.